Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. I hope and trust you're having a good weekend so far. I also want to say good morning and hello to those of you who are watching online. Uh, man, as David said, it is just so beautiful out there. I don't know how many of you come down Meekland, but the redbud trees on that road are just gorgeous. So hopefully you'll be able to enjoy today's nice weather and get some time outside. Um, today we are going to continue on in our series through the book of Proverbs. Uh, we've been in it for a while here. We're, we're not quite nearing the end, but we have uh, definitely turned the corner in some ways. Uh, but before we dive in, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for just your work in our lives. Lord, even as David talked about, Lord, you are always up to something. Lord, there's new things, new growth you want to birth in each of our hearts. And so, Lord, I just pray uh, that you would do that today, that through uh, your word, you would give us soft hearts, hearts that are ready to receive and are ready to grow. And we ask that you would do that by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I shared with you last week that I enjoy history and biographies. And honestly, with the amount of reading I have to do here in my role at the church, I uh, rarely have time or more importantly, energy to read when I get home. And so instead, when I have a, a brief moment to myself with four little kids running around, doesn't happen all that often, but when I do, I really enjoy watching documentaries. And by far, the ones that tend to be my favorites are the ones that are done by a guy named Ken Burns, who puts his stuff out on PBS. And I don't know how many of you saw this recently, but he just released one on Ernest Hemingway, the famous author of the 20th century. Now, before watching it, I didn't really know anything about Hemingway. In fact, my only exposure to him was having read his book, Farewell to Arms in high school. And honestly, I don't remember much about it. I, I think it's pretty depressing and I don't really remember it. But uh, needless to say, after watching this documentary, I learned that he was both a fascinating person, but also a very tragic one as well. And really after watching it and thinking about his life as a whole, it seems to me that Hemingway was a classic example of a narcissist. I mean, not only would he regularly make up and embellish stories about himself, uh, where he would kind of create a myth-like persona, but he was also deeply sensitive and seemingly insecure. I mean, he always had this, uh, this thing around him where he was trying to prove himself to others. In fact, in some ways, he was always trying to prove his manhood. A New York Times columnist, David Brooks, said this of Hemingway. He said he was a prisoner of his own celebrity. He'd become famous at 25, and by middle age, he was often just playing at being Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway seems to have lost track of his own authentic voice in the midst of the public persona he created. He was an extremely sensitive man who suffered much from the merest slights but was also an extremely dominating, cruel, and self-indulgent one. Um, one story from the documentary that really stood out and also highlighted Hemingway's insecurity and really highlighted his pride uh, had to do with a writer named Max Eastman. Now Eastman had written an essay critiquing one of Hemingway's books, uh, and, and in that essay, Eastman was essentially challenging and pointing out that Hemingway seemed to always be uh, hiding behind a false macho persona. In fact, Eastman very bluntly in the essay said this, he said, come out from behind that false hair on your chest, Ernest, we all know you. I mean, wow, that's, that's pretty insulting. And that's a pretty bold statement. And because Hemingway was so pride, uh, prideful, he couldn't let that go. In fact, four years later, he ran into Eastman at a publisher's office. And Hemingway went up to Eastman and he ripped open his shirt and showed him his chest hair. <laughs> 
And then stories differ a little bit, but some say that, uh, that Hemingway ripped open Eastman's shirt to expose his chest hair. And some say, you know, Eastman voluntarily showed him his chest hair. But either, and, and apparently Eastman didn't have very much. So it was kind of like, you know, they're having this chest hair competition, but uh, that, that alone was not enough. No, Hemingway took it a step farther. He reached and grabbed a book off a nearby table, which actually contained the essay critiquing him. And he slapped Eastman across the face. Now, on the one hand, that's kind of a funny story, but on the other hand, it's a very sad example of the destructive nature of pride in our lives. And unfortunately for Hemingway, his prideful attitude and actions would continue throughout his life until his terrible and tragic death at his own hands in 1961. Now, Hemingway may be an obvious and even an extreme example of the sin of pride, but unfortunately, it's something that we all struggle with from varying degrees, with varying degrees. That's why C.S. Lewis in his famous book, Mere Christianity, he devoted a whole chapter to the subject of pride. And he even entitled that chapter, The Great Sin. Here's what Lewis went on to say about pride. He said, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. John Stott, another well-loved and well-known British author, he said this about pride. He said, pride is your greatest enemy and humility is your greatest friend. Now, when it comes to the subject and topic of pride, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about it. In fact, Proverbs lays out for us both the dangers of pride, but also the wisdom and benefits of humility. And so our outline to guide us through here this morning will be very simply three questions about pride and humility from the book of Proverbs. First, we'll look at and we'll try to define what is pride. And then secondly, we'll look at why is this so destructive? And then finally, we'll try to answer how do we grow in humility? And so starting with this first one here, what is pride? Well, as we think about this, I think we have to acknowledge and we have to point out that pride is something that we can manifest both towards God and towards other people. And so starting first with what it looks like towards God, I, starting there, I think we have to go back to where we see it first show up, and that is in the garden in Genesis 3. You see, when you open your Bible and you begin reading, what you see there in those first two chapters of Genesis is you get the story of God's good creation. And we see there that everything that God made was good and right. But then starting in chapter three, this new character shows up. This one that the Bible refers to as the serpent. Now we learn later on in the Bible that this serpent is actually a fallen angel who is called Satan or sometimes referred to as the devil. And this is the one that Lewis pointed out became what he was because of pride. And yet here now, here he is, and he's trying to influence and tempt God's new creation into following the same path that he himself did. And so he approaches the woman, he approaches Eve, and he begins to arrogantly question and cast doubt on God's word and God's command. He even contradicts what God said to Eve, and he tells her, no, you, you won't die if you eat from the tree. 
But then not only that, Satan actually goes a step further and he lies to her and he tells her that the real reason God doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because he doesn't want you to become like him. In other words, Eve, God is holding out on you. Well, based on what happens next, it's obvious that Eve takes the bait. She takes the bait of Satan's lie and this leads to, and this creates in her a desire for the first time to become like God. So because of that, she ends up rebelling against God's command and she and Adam both take and they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And with that, as one author pointed out, the desire to lift up and exalt ourselves beyond our place as God's creature lies at the heart of pride. You see, ultimately at the end of the day, pride towards God looks like us trying to take the place of God and to becoming God's ourselves. It's saying to God, God, I don't need you. I don't need to listen to you because I know better. I'm smarter than you. In other words, it's a kind of attitude and a posture of independence and self-sufficiency. But not only that, but it's also this arrogant delusion of your own self-importance. It's where you try to put yourself at the center and move God out towards the periphery. Some people do this by just outright denying his existence, like what we see with those who are atheists. Others do this by not denying his existence per se, but by distorting his character. And so someone in that boat, you might hear them say something like, well, you know, I could never serve a God who does such and such. Or, you know, I could never believe in a God who would let this or that happen to me. Or, you know, I could never submit to a God who punishes sin or who exhibits wrath or something like that. And again, what's behind those kinds of statements and those kinds of attitudes is really pride. Again, it's this attitude of saying, I know better. I, if I was in charge of things, I would do it differently. I would be more loving, more gracious than he is. And so pride towards God, it carries with it this attitude of self-sufficiency and self-importance. But it also has this attitude of self-exaltation. It's where instead of pointing to God, we point to ourselves. Instead of thanking God and, and giving him glory, we take credit for things that we have no control over. We see examples of this throughout the Bible, but two really notable ones are uh, one with King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel and the other with King Herod in the book of Acts. In both of those cases, you have two really powerful men. But the mistake that they make is that they arrogantly take credit for things that were not due to them. And in the end, they were punished and humbled by God. You know there, the story King Nebuchadnezzar ends up losing his mind and eating grass like a cow for a long period of time. And King Herod actually, it says, drops dead after giving a speech where he lets the people praise him, but he doesn't give credit to God. You see, really, when you think about it, pride towards God is ultimately idolatry. It's again that posture of trying to take God off of his throne and put ourselves on it instead. And as Charles Spurgeon points out, that's a really stupid thing to do, right? Like pride is really dumb because of how delusional and how unrealistic it is. Spurgeon said this, he said, pride is a groundless thing. It stands on the sands, or worse than that, it puts its foot on the billows which yield beneath its tread, or worse still, it stands on bubbles which soon burst beneath its feet. Of all things, pride has the worst foothold. It has no solid rock on earth on which to place itself. 
We have reasons for almost everything, but we have no reasons for pride. Pride is a thing which should be unnatural to us, for we have nothing to be proud of. He continues, he says, where is there in man, uh, what is there in man of which we should glory? Our very creation is enough to humble us. What are we but creatures of today? Our frailty should be sufficient to lay us low, for we shall be gone tomorrow. Our ignorance should tend to keep pride from our lips. What are we but like the wild ass's colt which knows nothing? Our sins ought to effectually to stop our mouths and lay us in the dust. Of all the things in the world, pride towards God is that which has the very least excuse. It neither has stick nor stone on which to build. And because that is true, and because ultimately pride is an affront to God, and not only that, but it's damaging to us, because of all of that, God hates it. Proverbs 16.5 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Proverbs 15.25 says, The Lord tears down the house of the proud. In Proverbs 8, we have wisdom being sort of personified, and it's really what it's doing here is it's representing God's uh, heart and his mindset. And in verse 13 of chapter 8, wisdom says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Proverbs 21.4 says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. We looked at this proverb earlier on in the series, but in Proverbs chapter 6, it says this, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And the very first thing that is mentioned in that list that God hates is haughty eyes, or in other words, proud eyes. And talking about pride towards God and the effects of it, author Thomas Terence who himself was a white supremacist and a former KKK member, but whose life was radically changed by the gospel, he went on to write this. As people lose or suppress the knowledge of God, spiritual darkness grows and a psychological inversion occurs. In their thinking, God becomes smaller and they become larger. The center of gravity in their mental life, life shifts from God to themselves. They become the center of their world, and God is conveniently moved to the periphery, either through denial of his existence or distortion of his character. Self-importance and godless self-confidence grow stronger. That cycle, uh, the cycle that follows is familiar. People exalt themselves against God and over others. Pride increases, arrogant and or abusive behavior ensues, and people suffer." You see, what Terence is getting at here is that as we behave prideful towards God, it inevitably leads us to being prideful towards others as well. And the result is, is what he says here, is that people suffer. And so in light of that, let's define now what pride looks like in relation to others. Well, certainly some of the same prideful attitudes and behaviors that we exhibit towards God, we in turn exhibit towards others. So for example, one of the ways that pride manifests itself towards others is us exalting ourselves or us bringing attention to ourselves. Proverbs 27.2 says, let someone else praise you and not your own mouth, an outsider and not your own lips. And yet for someone who is proud, they can't do this. They have to be the ones to point out their own achievements. They have to make sure that everybody knows who they are and what they have done. 
You see, for the proud person, the biggest fear that they have is that something that they do will go unnoticed or unappreciated. And so anytime they do anything good, they must point it out and make sure others around them know about it. They say, or they do, as it says here in Proverbs, they praise themselves. Another proverb which talks about this is Proverbs 30, verse 32, which says, if you play the fool and exalt yourself, or if you plan evil, clap your hand over your mouth. You see what that Proverbs is saying there? It's saying, if you are struggling with pride, if you're about to be a fool and exalt yourself in front of others and tell everyone how great you are, then take your hand and place it over your mouth in order to keep you from talking. You see, the reason or the motivation behind self-exaltation self is, is primarily, I think, the need to prove ourselves in order to show that we are better than others. And often what I think this looks like practically is us making fun of or us putting others down in order to lift ourselves up. Proverbs eleven twelve says, whoever derides their neighbor has no sense, but one who has understanding holds their tongue. Proverbs 21, 24 says, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. You see, again, the reason that we deride someone or the reason that we would scoff at them is in order to make ourselves feel better. You know, I, I quoted Lewis earlier, but in that chapter later on, he wrote this. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that we are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. But not only that, the other thing we see with pride is that it can cause someone to be a terrible listener. And the reason for that is because pride causes you to focus on yourself. And so this is the kind of thing where someone is trying to tell a story or they're maybe trying to give someone else advice, but instead of listening to them, the proud person is just waiting to interrupt them or to cut them off or to, to add something to it. However, though, Proverbs 18, 13 says this, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. You see, the reason the proud person does this is because they are wise in their own eyes. They, they falsely believe that they know everything and, and therefore they don't need to listen to others. They don't need to take others' advice because they know it all. Again, Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs 26, 12 says, do you see a, wise, a person wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for them. Proverbs 13, 10 says, where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. You see, the thing is, is that pride, it can keep us from learning. It can keep us from receiving advice and counsel and even correction from others. Pride also keeps us from admitting our mistakes and errors. And because of that, pride often leads to strife and conflict in our relationships with others. I mean, nothing will ruin a relationship or a friendship faster than pride. 
I mean, because you and I are human beings and because we are in fact sinful and we hurt people, what that means is that we make, we make mistakes often, right? That's just part of living in the flesh and, and being a human being. And yet, because the proud person can't admit their faults or their mistakes, they never take responsibility and they never go to the point of asking for forgiveness and saying they're sorry. Because to do so would require humility. And because they don't do that, there's often conflict or strife in their relationships. I mean, look, let's just face it. Pride really does bring out the worst in all of us. And again, it's something that we all struggle with from one degree to another. And so to finish out this question here of what is pride, let me just show you a video of a theologian where he's really doing a good job of explaining and showing you what pride looks like. Let's go ahead and see that now. I'm actually kind of quiet off stage. A lot of people don't realize that. I was at a dinner party recently. A bunch of people that I don't know. One guy talking plenty for everybody. Me, myself, right? And then I, and then myself, right? Me, me. I couldn't tell this one about I because I was talking about myself. And then me, me. Beware the me monster. So I tried to jump in with a little story. I don't want to just sit there the whole night. Right when I'm done with my story, this guy goes, that ain't nothing. Didn't mean to waste everybody's time. Telling my nothing story. Here, let Marco Polo speak. He's back with tales of adventure. My story ain't nothing. Maybe it wasn't, because I made the mistake of trying to tell a story about having only two wisdom teeth pulled, and I learned a lesson. Don't ever try to tell a two wisdom tooth story, because you ain't going nowhere. Before wisdom teeth, people are going to parachute in and cut you off at the pass. Halt! Halt with your two wisdom tooth tail! You will never complete one, trust me. I'm trying to tell my story. You know, I had some wisdom teeth pulled. I had, um, I had two, but I had four pulled. Oh, okay. No, five. No, nine. I had nine wisdom teeth pulled. All of mine were impacted. They were all coming upside down. The roots were wrapped around my tongue, coming out my nose. They were tusks. I was a warthog. No anesthesia. They pulled them out with pliers. I was eating corn on the cob that afternoon. Pin the blue ribbon upon his chest. That knocks the socks off of my wisdom tooth tail. Why do people need to top other people? I've never understood it, and I see it all the time. Obviously, people get something out of it. At best, people wait for your lips to stop. Yeah, as soon as... Okay, yeah, you, me! You, me! You see the difference? You see, you see that? Now I do. What is it about the human condition people get something out of that? That's why I have a social fantasy. I wish I was one of the 12 astronauts who have been on our moon. They must love knowing they can beat anybody's story whenever they want. They can sit back quietly at a dinner party while some other person, some me monster, is doing his thing and let him go. 
let him run with the line while you be quiet. Oh, really? <laughs> let him have his moment. Yeah, I'm a big traveler. I have my business. All. I got my own global enterprise. I got to check. You know, driving in the Autobahn because I keep a fleet of sports cars over in Zurich. You know, I got this Swiss account that I want to check. Mount Kilimanjaro expedition. Might have to cancel that. You know, runways in Aspen are a lot shorter the first time you go in there. You know, you know, you know, the Pacific Rim Company are going to try to take that over. And global enterprise. I walked on the moon. Oh, well, you have the floor, moonwalker. <laughs> you know, you mentioned driving on the Autobahn. That reminded me. Once I was driving in the sea of tranquility. In my lunar rover. Too was worried about our speed till I remembered why we're the only ones on the moon. All right, he's not actually a theologian, but uh, I, I think it gets the point across. All right, so we've talked a little bit about what pride is, but let's go to that second question now, and that is why is it so destructive? Or in other words, what are the consequences of pride? Well, it should be obvious from the video, but let's let's get into this a little bit. First, let me share with you some of the Proverbs which talk about this. Proverbs eleven twelve says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 14, 3 says, A fool's mouth lashes out with pride, but the lips of the wise protect them. Proverbs 16, 5 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 18 through 19 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Proverbs 18, 12 says, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. And so what we see here is that Proverbs is very clear and warns us over and over again against the dangers of pride. And how pride will ultimately lead to our destruction. And so with that in mind, let's think through and let's talk about some of the ways that pride is destructive, both in our relationship with God, but also in our relationship with each other. Now, when it comes to our relationship with God, there are a number of ways that pride is destructive. The first and most devastating way that pride is destructive is that it can keep you from receiving salvation. And the reason I say that is because it takes humility in order to come to Jesus and to receive salvation in the first place. You see, because of what salvation is and what it implies, in order to receive it, you have to acknowledge that you need saved. Or in other words, you have to be honest about the fact that you are a failure and that you are a sinful being who is in need of help and rescue. Uh, Tim Keller compares it to someone giving you a gift bag with a big bottle of mouthwash in it. In receiving the gift and and taking it, there's an acknowledgement that you have bad breath and that you need the mouthwash, right? And in the same way, in coming to Jesus and in receiving the gift of salvation, you and I, we have to humble ourselves and we have to acknowledge that we need him. We have to realize and be honest with the fact that he lived the life that we should have lived and that he died the death that we deserved. And so to not do that, 
to not humble yourself in that way, that would be the most devastating and uh, the most significant result of pride in your life. Again, pride can keep you from receiving salvation. What other ways though is pride devastating in our relationship with God? Well, another way that it can be devastating is that it can keep us from listening to and obeying God's word fully. Proverbs 13, 13 says, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. You see, we've said earlier uh, that pride causes us to look to ourselves instead of looking to God. And because of that, when you are walking in pride, one of the outcomes often is that we ignore or we disobey God's word. And according to this proverb here, when we do that, we are flirting with disaster. You see, we've said both in this series and in other series that God's commands are for our good. That God's laws and his commands, they are for our protection. And so when you and I violate them or we ignore them, what happens is we step outside of that protection and we step outside of that wisdom. And the result is, is that we often end up hurting ourselves or hurting others. And so again, pride here, it can keep us from obeying the word. But not only that, we also see here that pride can cause a, a God to oppose us. It says in Proverbs 3.34 that he mocks proud mockers, but he shows favor to the humble and oppressed. Uh, James, Jesus' younger brother, he actually quotes this proverb in his letter. And in James chapter 4, he writes this, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor, or some translations say grace, to the humble. You see, because God is who he is and we are not, when we through pride try to act like or pretend like we are in fact God, God opposes us. In other words, he sets himself against us. And in doing so, we put ourselves on a collision course with God. Like a man riding on a bicycle toward a semi-truck is a man who is walking in pride towards God. And let me just tell you, in that collision, it's not God who's going to get hurt. It's going to be you. We see this really illustrated over and over again in the Bible. I already mentioned two characters, Herod and Nebuchadnezzar. And those would be two examples of God opposing and even humbling two pagan kings. But God also does this with his own people, even with his own kings who are walking in pride. The classic example of this is with King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar or haven't read Chronicles lately, let me just give you some background here. Uh, Uzziah became king of Judah when he was only 16 years old. And it says of him there in verse 4 of 2 Chronicles 26 that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Well, after that, we read that Uzziah goes on and he has all of this success in battle. He defeats his enemies. And so things are going really well for this young king. But then we get to verse 16 and it says this, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So basically what's going on here is it says that success and power went to his head and as a result, he became prideful, which led to him disobeying God's word. 
You see, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that the reason him going into the temple to burn incense, the reason that was a big deal was because the Lord commanded against that. Only the priests were allowed to do that. And yet here we have the King of Judah doing this himself. This is what my uh, West Virginia relatives call getting too high on the hog or getting too big for your britches. You forget where you came from, you forget your role. And so if you keep reading the story, what happens next is that this group of priests follow him into the temple and they confront King Uzziah and they say to him, look, it's not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priest, the descendants of Aaron who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary for you have been unfaithful and you will not be honored by the Lord God. Then skipping down to verse 19, it says, Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn the incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priest and their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the, priest, uh, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, when they saw the leprosy on his forehead, they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. See, again, pride, it, it sets us up against God and therefore God opposes us. And in the end, we get hurt. I mean, as we think about this, this is ultimately what was going on with the Pharisees and the New Testament. I mean, there's no doubt as you read through the gospels, you see that these Pharisees were proud towards God. They refused to submit to and obey his word. They refused to accept Jesus as their Messiah. And in the end, it led to their own destruction and downfall. In summarizing the, uh, the, the effects of why pride is so destructive in our relationship with God, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and on people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And so these would be some of the main ways pride is destructive in our relationship with God. But, but what about our relationship with others? Well, pride is also very, very destructive there as well. In fact, many theologians have argued that pride is the root of all sin. In other words, what they mean by that is that if you trace the root cause of any particular sin back far enough, what you will find is that ultimately it is due to pride. John Stott, who I quoted earlier, he said this, pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. In a different article I read by a guy named Sam Storms, he argued that pride is ultimately behind the sins of envy, bitterness, strife, deceit, hypocrisy, slander, and greed. And so certainly as we think about how this affects and impacts our relationships with others, it's obvious here that pride wounds and injures people. I mean, there's no doubt that pride pushes people away. You know, I mentioned in my introduction that I had watched this documentary about Ernest Hemingway and, and one of the other stories and it is it was during uh, World War II he was on his third wife at this point and it was a lady by the name of Martha Gellhorn and she was headed over to Europe to be a war correspondent and because that's actually where her and Hemingway had met they were both war correspondents in the Spanish Civil War and he kept trying to she kept trying to get him to go with her 
But he really didn't want to. He was actually afraid of, of going back over because he himself had gone through World War I and then also he had seen the Spanish Civil War and he just felt like, you know, my luck's running out. I really don't want to see war ever again. And because of that, she accused him of being a coward. Well, because he was such a prideful and bitter person, he went on to say, I'll show you. And then he says some bad words. He says, they'll be reading my stuff long after the worms are done with you. Again, the thing was, is that Martha Gellhorn, his wife, she was actually a very good writer. And because of that, Hemingway was uh, so prideful and insecure, he couldn't handle someone else in his life getting any praise or acknowledgement. You see, again, the proud person, they, they can't cheer and they can't be thankful when someone else succeeds because it feels threatening to them. And because of that, and because they feel the need to prove themselves, when someone in their life gets noticed or someone else succeeds, instead of it causing them to applaud them, it actually causes them to be very critical and to look for flaws in order to try to cut this person down. And so certainly pride is destructive in our relationship with others because it hurts them. It leads to conflict and strife. And again, ultimately, it just pushes people away. However, though, not only that, pride is also destructive because, as I said earlier, the proud person can't admit when they are wrong. And they don't ever take advice or heed correction. And because they never do that, they never learn from their mistakes. They never grow and mature. As I said earlier, pride, what it does is it causes us to rely on ourselves. One of the more evil and even in some ways ironic ways pride can manifest itself and be destructive is spiritual pride. You know, I just mentioned the Pharisees and certainly uh, spiritual pride was a big issue with them. And Jesus understood that and he kept pushing on that. And in his famous parable on, about the Pharisee and the tax collector, do you remember how the tax collector prayed? He said, God, I, I thank you that I'm not like other people. You know, those robbers and evildoers and adulterers and, you know, even like this tax collector right here. God, thank you. I'm not like him. No, I, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. Right? Like this guy, instead of praying, he just basically boasted in himself. He talked about how great he was, how righteous he was. However, though, in contrast to that, Jesus uh, tells us that the tax collector simply prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And with that, Jesus concludes by saying it's the tax collector who went home justified and forgiven, not the Pharisee. You see, the reason why spiritual pride is so ugly is because it hides itself and it wraps itself up in religion. And so on the outside, it can look really, really good. But inside, it is rotten. And that's why Jesus hates it, right? That's, that's hypocrisy. I mean, that's the main thing he addressed with the Pharisees. In fact, earlier on in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 14, we're told there that Jesus is at uh, the house of one of the Pharisees. And he's just watching them interact. And he just gets so disgusted by how they're behaving that in Luke uh, 14, 11, Jesus said this, For all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And certainly as we think about this last year in the American church, we've seen that happen a bunch, right? Like there's been a lot of Christian leaders who have been getting humbled by the Lord. And so we could just keep going on here. We could just keep talking about all of the ways that pride is devastating and destructive in our lives. But, but let's go to this last question here, and that is, how do we grow in humility? 
You see, I've not said it yet, but humility is the opposite of pride. In other words, humility is the antidote to pride. Humility is that posture. It's that attitude that you and I should have both towards God and towards our fellow man. And so if that's true, how do we grow in it? How do we cultivate humility in our lives? Well, I think the first way we can grow in humility is by acknowledging regularly, if not daily, our need and dependence on God. You see, again, pride is this mindset, this, this attitude of, I don't need you, God. I can do it on my own. But in contrast, humility lives in reality and humility knows and understands that we do, in fact, need him. And the more that you and I get that, and the more that we acknowledge that, that we do need him, the more that we can grow in humility. One of my life verses that have been, has been very meaningful to me, uh, really the whole chapter is John 15. But in verse five, Jesus, is, he's saying, you are the vine and I, or you are, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he finishes by saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not just, man, I just, being in ministry, that is so real. Right? Like every Sunday, I just, when I, before I come, it's like I'm acknowledging in the car on the way here, Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. You see, really what that is, is when we acknowledge our need and our dependence on God, that's what the Bible calls fearing the Lord. You know, in this series, we've already talked a little bit about what it means to fear the Lord. And when you and I live in that truth, and we live in that reality and we have that, po that posture and that understanding of, Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. Every breath that I take, every time my heart beats, that is a gift from you. And when we realize that and acknowledge that, we are now living in the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 15, says, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom and humility comes before honor. And so that would be one practical way that we could grow in humility. A second way, though, that we can grow in humility is by regularly, if not daily, expressing our thankfulness and gratitude to God. You see, this one is very uh, related to the last one, but it's this added step. You see, because you and I are dependent upon him, what that means is that everything good in our lives is a gift from him. And therefore, what that should do is that should cause us to respond with thankfulness and gratitude. And the reason for that is because, number one, when we do that, it honors him. It brings him glory. But secondly, when we do that, it also is this great reminder of who he is and all that he has done for us. One writer said this. He said, thankfulness is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. And so the more you, that you and I can cultivate hearts that are thankful, that are great, grateful, the more that we will grow in humility. The, the last way I want to mention here is perhaps the most powerful way that we can grow in humility, and that is by remembering and meditating on regularly, if not daily, the life and the death of Jesus. See, when you read the Gospels, what you find out is that Jesus was by far the greatest humility uh, in all of the world and, and all throughout history. The very fact, I mean, think about this, the very fact that the Son of God left the glories of heaven in order to take on human flesh is staggering. But not only that, even the way that he was born was extremely humbling. I mean, far from being born in the palace to a royal family, King Jesus was born to a poor teenage mom. 
And not only that, but he was laid in a manger because there was no room for him. There was no room for the Son of God on earth. But not only that, though, not only was Jesus' birth and the circumstances around it humbly, humbling, but so was the rest of his life. I mean, think about it. Jesus spent his time hanging around the poor and the needy, around those who had diseases and even demons. Those who the world had rejected and had forsaken, these are the people Jesus chose to spend his time with. That's why Jesus told his disciples, he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, right before he went to the cross, we're told that he got, uh, he took off his outer clothes and he got a towel and he wrapped it around his waist and he got on his knees and he washed his 12 disciples' stinky, nasty feet. But then not only that, the greatest act of humility in Jesus' life was that he allowed himself to be crucified and killed on a Roman cross. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians, he really captures all of this. And in Philippians 2 verse 5, he writes this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, as you and I, as we meditate on and we remember the life of Jesus and the example that he set, and especially when we remember the death of Jesus, both how he died and why he had to die, when we do that, it brings humility into our lives. You see, nothing will humble us more than focusing on the cross. You see, when you and I remember, we remind ourselves that it was not someone else's sin, but that it was our sin that held him there we, as Spurgeon said, we will have nothing to be proud about. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite Christian pastors from the previous century, he wrote this. There's only one thing that I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the Son of God and especially to contemplate the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Nothing else can do it. When I see that I am a sinner, that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I am humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross gives us that spirit of humility. And so to close here, let's finish by taking the Lord's Supper together. I mean, this is why we do this, right? Like we're not playing religion here. We are remembering the death of Jesus Christ and we're remembering what that represents. And not only that, but we're proclaiming his death until he returns. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this and remembrance of me. 
So let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Amen. Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you so much. Lord, thank you that you are willing to subject yourself to humiliation. God, that you are willing to be nailed to a wooden cross, Lord, in order to save us, in order to rescue us from our sins, and especially from the sin of pride. Lord, we confess all of us struggle with pride from, from one degree to another. Lord, we are all prone to try to scoot you off your throne and sit on it ourselves. God, we're all prone to point to ourselves and to try to bring glory to ourselves. But thank you, Lord, that you came and you came in such humble circumstances to deliver us from that, to free us from the sin of pride. And so, Father, I just pray and ask right now by the power of your spirit, you would help us to remember and to contemplate the cross. God, you would just give us such a clear picture of the ugliness of it but you would also give us such a clear picture of the glory of it, the beauty of it, the fact that it's love on display for us. And Lord, would you allow that to change our hearts? Would you allow that to mold us and to make us more into the image of your son? Thank you, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. Thank you guys so much for being here this morning. Um, why don't you go ahead and stand? We're gonna close with a final blessing, a final benediction. Um, I'll be down here. There'll be members of our prayer team down here. If you have anything going on in your life that you would like prayer for, please make your way down here after the service. But let's close now with a final benediction. 2 Peter 3.18. May you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.